This is Jan Cox, talk number 2515, recorded April 21st, 2000. I'd like to remind everyone that when you're enlightened, you get an automatic 15% off. <laughs> and, you, and you don't need a shopper's card or anything, do you? Just right off the top, it's automatic. And uh, I'm going to pick up reading from, based upon that new model that I presented to you Wednesday. I'm in the middle of the papers I wrote for that night. But let me also point out that if you would like, personally, uh, instead of looking at it, I'm still referring to it in these papers since I wrote them, as I said several nights ago, I referred to it as two worlds of words and of movement. Even though I'm saying that, you could picture it as being two circuits. The circuits of movements and the circuits of words. And as in my other model of the three circuits, these two are intertwined, overlapping, overlaid, inseparable, amalgamated, and like that. So, but remember, I started out Wednesday pointing out the terminology I was using of the model then was that we live in two worlds of movement and of words. And if you recall, I stressed that I, even though I'd, I have used a similar model years ago, uh, I very specifically, as far as I'm concerned, I, all I can tell you is how much I got out of it, that I do not mean the two worlds of action and ideas or two, words, two worlds of behavior and thought, movement, and words. All right. Page 17 of the news that I had started previously. Yet another definition of being asleep is spending too much of your life in words which offers up this inquiry. Is this why the more intelligent people are the ones most likely to find themselves asleep? And the less intelligent ones are most likely to awaken. And don't reveal your stupidity by letting on that you don't get this one. If humans did not have the ability to talk, everyone would engage in the dangerous behavior of being themselves. Rituals are man's unrecognized attempt to bring together the two worlds of movement and words, even if it is just for the momentary occasion. There's an inherent hunger in men for this merging, although it is never recognized for what it is. Note, to varying intensities at various times, everyone longs for a more equitable distribution in their life of the two worlds of movement and words. And this is exemplified by those whose life is dominated by movement, dreaming of being better educated, not for the purpose of increased intelligence, but rather for a greater dexterity with words. And by those whose life is centered around words who picture themselves as agile men of action. You indefatigable 
investigators might look into the matter of men commonly making hand gestures as they speak. This is a scrumptious example of the two worlds of movement and words attempting to integrate themselves, and more specifically of the world of words by bringing into its activity movement, trying to better validate itself, to better establish its claim to serious legitimacy. Well, since I brought up Wednesday, the sun will stop. First time that it ever hit me of the beauty and the expansiveness of looking at life and man, as at any given moment you can look and see that whatever's going on could either be seen as being a result and an activity in a world of movement or being run by a circuit of movement are a world of words. And one of the first ones that hit me, I can still recall it, just within surely 60 seconds, was hand gestures. As I said, as some of you know, I keep bringing it, or I used to bring it up a lot, I've always found it fascinating, and even neurology threatened to come up with some connection between the areas of the brain governing speech and those uh, that have some activity in the control of gestures. But I got it. This model explained it all. And I don't bring it up just for this reason. I was, but here it comes. I was hoping maybe it might blow some of yours head off. If you, I'm going to tell you what hand gestures are for. We've got the world of words and the world of movement. And I assume you understand or have a picture, I assume by now, as per all of my models, that you always have an offspring, that everything begets something else. Hence, one of my uses of the scene of a father and son talking. And I have even gone so far as to point out that energy is flowing up, as I used to draw it, from the planet, right up to the soles of your feet, right up to the spine, and there is this development that you could even picture it, as per my model, that you first have the red circuit, then it begets the blue circuit and the blue the yellow. Or in a wider view, the primary world, the physical world of material existence, begets the secondary world, as I call it. All right, the world of words is begot by the world of movement. The world of movement comes first. The area of the brain that is in charge of speech is one of the last to develop. They have tracked it embryotically. But it is simply that that is one of the last things, and if we take cartoon history of evolution, then speech was, I guess, the latest in the evolution of man. It was at the latest stage. So, anyway, this has been my picture of things in general for many, 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 many years. I don't have to explain it to me. That's just my general view, no matter what specific new models I come up with. So as soon as I, that this picture hit my mind, this model, that everything is either in a world of movements and a world of words, and I also, I don't have to remind myself, but I do you, again, that they are inseparable. This is an ad hoc model. 
And so I know that there is a complete integration, and that they are intertwined, there is intercommunication going on constantly. But within just a few seconds, the explanation for hand gestures, or one hit me, a model for an explanation. And that is, the world of words is the sun. It's the new kid on the block. And everything that that entails. But what the world of words has done by bringing in hand gestures when it speaks is it has brought in the big guy. It's brought in its father. <laughs> it's brought in something whose legitimacy is not in question. <laughs> if the world of movement is in question, you're dead. The heart moves, the blood moves. The world of movement is minimal survival. So its legitimacy is never in question. But it's like words, bring it in, and it's like, huh, am I something? That I am not just some kind of illusion. I am not a complete hollow usurper. I'm somebody. Look here, movements. <laughs> Does everybody get it? To me, it's like a, the, small, the smallest possible hood you could imagine in Dodge City trying to show off by pointing behind him or maybe trying to get... He sees, he sees Jesse James or Billy Kid walking down the middle of the street and he walks up beside him or, you know, and kind of walks beside him like they know each other. And he looks around at the people that normally piss on his foot and push him around and he looks at them and then kind of you know, shakes his head you know, thus far, Jesse hadn't pushed him out of the way or shot him, but he, he walks along and it's like, huh? By association, his stock, at least in his mind, has jumped immeasurably. I say that's what hand gestures are. That's when I knew I was onto something. You don't know how much I got out of that, even now. It's hard for me to get off of it. Because I could carry it on further. Can you do it yourself? And not just hand gestures, but what would you think of after hand gestures? Posture, so-called body language in general, but gestures. And to me, it is just as clear as hell. The world of words, by bringing in gestures, and of course, people, when they try to explain it, if you ask somebody, they'd say, or they would be inclined to give men credit for consciousness and willful decisions before their acts, which, of course, is folly. But if you ask somebody, why do people gesture? If you really got somebody, an ordinary intelligent, just an ordinary person, they would probably finally say, well, it's to try and reinforce the point. Some of be trying to make a point, like if a speaker has access to a podium, maybe he'll pound on the podium, or just when two people are talking, and one has really gotten to the, the one the speaker is really getting to a point he considers important, he tries to emphasize how important he considers it to be, perhaps by pointing to the listener, just to the other guy in front of him, or maybe touching him on the chest, you know, tapping him with his finger like, listen, I'm telling you, this is the way it is. They could say that, and it sounds all right. But my model blows the whole thing to kingdom come. It answers it to me. None of this other stuff about, well, people are psychologically trying to rein. You know by now. People don't know what they're going to say next. They're not plotting not only what they're going to say, as you know by now, but they're sure as hell not plotting, well, let's see, what hand gesture will I do over that sentence that's coming up? 
that I'm plotting right now while I'm even saying this. No such thing, but I'm telling you what it is. The world of words is attempting to further establish, or to at least establish, a greater degree of legitimacy by bringing in movement. <clears throat> well, like I said, it's hard for me to stop on that. I could go, I saw, I guess I'll apologize, I can't remember who, Wordsworth or Blake or somebody, I saw in that one model 10,000 other worlds. Ooh, I like that. If I had a pen, I'd write that down and quote myself. I did. Well, on that same page, as long as I've stopped on page 19, it opened up. This page started with rituals or man's unrecognized attempt to bring together the two worlds of movement and words. You know, people have attempted to explain rituals of all sorts, religious rituals being the most common. But that's, what, that's the words that are put on these movements that men do. And we are so accustomed to it. And you're certainly accustomed to it in whatever, let's say, religion or whatever culture you grew up in. But most of you, or all of you, are now at least second-handedly hip and sophisticated through TV and movies. And so you have a fair familiarity with rituals, customs that you have never personally witnessed. But there have been all sorts of attempts, as you know, psychological, sociological, anthropological attempts to explain rituals. But if you are getting it all to be a good investigator, all you gotta do is stand back from all religions, all rituals, and like everything else, because you can do it with no hostility, which it takes to be a real investigator. You can't be prejudiced. You can't already have a foregone conclusion or you'll never bring your investigation to a satisfactory consummation. But if you look around at any ritual on this planet, any ritual, Catholic, Jewish, Islamic, Buddhist, or if it was they're just the easiest religious, you know what I mean. I could pick out cultural rituals. But if you stand back and look at them, with no hostility, you can just look at it and think, and what planet are these people from? What in the hell are they doing? What is the purpose of people? And they've always got stories, of course. They have huge stories, complex stories for Passover, for Easter for the Catholic Mass itself, intricate, to where each little movement, or the Greek Orthodox, if you've ever seen one of their services, if you think the Catholic, if you're not Catholic, and if you've ever been to a Mass and thought, what in the hell are they doing? Especially if you're, you know, grew up in a Baptist church, I guess. But the Greek Orthodox, it just goes on and on and on, and it's like some kind of play that no one knows who's directing it. They come in and out, and they swing things around, and they bow, and they dip. And yet, if you ask them, and it's written somewhere, because they're not ad-libbing, each little thing has, they say, a purpose. Those of you, some of you weren't here last time. I was pointing out, I used it trying to get us started, trying to get you started, that when arguments are between men come to a conclusion one person appears to win the argument, it is taken to be that 
the one who won the argument when the other person finally gives. They concede and maybe perhaps even nod or give sign that you, you've almost won me over. I see that I, I can't respond to your last argument. They take it as being a triumph of intellect when it is no such thing. It's not a triumph of intelligence. I know what they mean, and you should too. It is one thing. It's a triumph of words. In the same way, they can explain what Easter is. You know, that God's son, who men killed, and he plotted it that way. At any rate, just as he said he would, after a couple of days, he actually came back to life. I mean, he was physically dead and came back to life, and therefore, that's why it's good you know, to follow that teaching, because you can do the same. I think he can explain it. But does anybody understand by now? Remember, extract all hostility, because, or you missed the whole point. You look at that, and the explanations, although it sounds, you know, to an ordinary mind, it sounds good, I guess that if you join up our church, if you follow this religion, then when they kill you or when you die, then you'll be able to get up from the dead and you're not really dead. It's nothing but words. Absolutely nothing but words. Uh, and as I attacked, figuratively speaking, all of you or most of you Wednesday, you sit there, and I'm sure by now, if for no other reason of hearing me go over this, make this kind of statement so many times over the last few years, I assure you, you have not seen to the bottom of it. You can sit there and go, oh, yeah, yeah you're right, it's just talk because they can't prove it. Strike that last part. It's just words. Don't, don't listen to your own words in your own head going, well, sure, it's just words. You don't see it. You do not see to the bottom of it. Trust me, it is just words. So there's no way to explain rituals, even though there are acceptable explanations. You know, doing the Christian church, uh, what do they call it, communion, that we're drinking wine and it represents the blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus, so that it represents that you have taken him into your heart or soul or whatever they say and that now you'll live forever. There's an explanation. You can go, well, okay, if you believe one thing, you believe another. If you start off buying the original story, then you can go along with this. Is words beget words. Only words can explain words. But there is something in particular, I must admit, and I assume you see it, that so-called rituals have a... Surely it is a singular hold on people's... I know of nothing comparable that rituals on the surface cannot be explained just by the explanations that the participants give. Because from one religion to another, still using religion as the playing field, from one religion to another, they all have something very similar. It'll go under different names, and of course they have different prophets, and they call their gods by different name, but you can find something similar in all religions. Figure out one ritual and you find something similar. The point being that rituals are everywhere. Atheists, pagans have rituals and they have rituals to the point that they will give their life for the ritual or they may require or the village or the group may require that someone give up their life and sacrifice to the gods periodically. Rituals, without a doubt, are singular and the whole that they have on man, or put the other way, the importance 
to which men place on rituals. And yet, as I said, if you can stand back without any personal interest in it, if you can be indifferent and look at any ritual and then realize that there are people who give up large sums of money, give up part of their year's harvest, give up their daughter's life for a ritual, even though they got a verbal explanation, if you don't listen to that, or if you understand what words are, it doesn't bother you anyway, you simply look at it and think, no words. How can they, at first you might think, how can people be so stupid? The priest here in this one group says that the gods that only talk to him say that once a year, the youngest virgin in the village must be thrown into a volcano or else the crops won't uh, be bountiful. And you could hear that and go, how can this man, this farmer, who's about to give up his daughter, his only daughter, how can the words of this priest, just words, just words, the priest comes out, of course the guy's brought, born into a village that the whole atmosphere is already established. Their secondary world is already in place. So this farmer, X, grows up in the environment where every year one of his neighbor's daughters gets thrown in a volcano. So he grows up with it. Blah, 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 you know how it goes. So to him, that is part of reality. It is the secondary reality. And it's all based on words. That's all the secondary reality is. Using it again as an ad hoc model, which is truly inseparable from everything else, but you know what I'm saying, I assume by now. He grows up in that environment, and it's based on what? Nothing but words. Think about it. It's not based on any movement. The farmer has never seen the God that the priest refers to. None of his neighbors have ever seen the God. There has been no movement to back up this ritual of throwing in the youngest virgin in the village into the volcano once a year. The living source, the living proof of the ritual, proof in the second or third definition of it, the proof of the ritual is that the shaman, the priest, the high priest of the village, he says that the ritual, the demand of the God is still in place. The ritual will again, as we all expect, will be carried out this year. Words coming out of another man's mouth drives another human, an apparently sane human. The rest of the year, this guy does a little, he participates in the village council, he lends money, he borrows money. He has social intercourse with his neighbors. And now this year, he's going to voluntarily bring his daughter, his only child, 14-year-old girl who he dearly loves, and he's going to let the priest go up there and push her into a volcano or chop off her head because the priest and their, the secondary reality of that village says that the gods demand it. All right, you can look at it and hear all that and think it's totally inexplicable. How can the words of the priest, how can the words of anybody make a sane man give up his daughter? I'm telling you. The hold of rituals is in a public and a collective manner, it is a merging of words and movement in a way that I know of nothing comparable. There is nothing comparable. That's the power of it. I don't know whether I'm wasting my time because it's, it's even more than I'm telling you. I see the first example that I was using about hand gestures, I was blaming it on words, that words bring in movement 
so-called hand gestures, to help establish their legitimacy, to try and validate their existence and what they're saying. If they say something at the same time they're moving, it seems to add importance to them, which no one that I've ever heard has ever put this, has ever verbalized this, if they had any suspicion of what was going on. All right, now the example I'm giving you of rituals, rituals that are taken to be of such importance that lives are freely given up. I'm saying it's the same thing, but you can't just look and say, well, it's words trying to do it. Uh, I can see it, and to make it, well, my driving is crazy and talking about it all night. Let me just put it to you this way. Men, of course, it's life doing it, but men won't. I'm telling you, each and every person on this planet wants a greater integration of movement and words in their life. It varies from person to person because some people's lives are more centered around movement and some people's more around words. And it can shift from minute to minute in any one person. It can shift from one circumstance to another within a split second. But everyone feels this. It's just obvious as hell when, once you can see it, that everyone wants in their own way. They want a greater integration in them of the world of movement or the circuit of movement and the circuit of words. They want to see it in life, but they want it in them, which is the same thing. That is what rituals are. It is a forced, the way it appears, that is, once a ritual is in place in a secondary in the secondary reality of some local area, then it seems to be inescapable. In other words, the, the farmer, whose ever turn it is, whoever has the youngest virgin that year, it, no, one, no one doubts that he's going to freely bring his daughter. He and his wife may cry and sob, or perhaps that's not allowed, perhaps that's not part of the ritual, but everyone else knows how heartbroken he is, but no one doubts that he, on the appointed day, will deliver his daughter. It's not, the ritual is a forced ritual. Even though their, their words will say otherwise, even though the priest will come out and he probably has some verbal ritual he goes through and says, who have we found to be the youngest virgin in the village? And the farmer's supposed to raise his hand and point to his daughter. And he says, well, you know that the gods ask that the youngest virgin be given by her father so that the crops may have the blood of a human and we'll appease the gods, pay homage, and they will bring forth a bountiful harvest. So do you freely bring your daughter for the good of the village? And the farmer's supposed to say, yes, I do. So it apparently, they even have words like, do you do it? Do you volunteer? But you understand, no one questions that the farmer's going to do it. All rituals, once they're entrenched, are not voluntary. Now, you can say on a smaller level, off to the side for a second, you can say that attending mass as a ritual, you can say, well, it's voluntary. The church doesn't force you to come. <clears throat> but you know this, again, it's to the varying degree. If you want to live, if you're, you, the individual, are trying to be a good Catholic, then to the degree to which, at any given time, that you want to be able to consider yourself a, quote, good Catholic, you will go along with the ritual. If you're trying to be, in your mind, the best possible Catholic you can be, then the ritual of Mass is not... Uh, it is uh, obligatory. It is not up to you to decide, well, some days I'll go and some days I won't. You will be there if you can physically make it to the church. 
So according to what I meant by varying times and varying places and varying intensities in various people, the ritual at its extreme, when it is working over a group of people, when it's a collectively done ritual, uh, it can be, even though the words may say otherwise, it is a forced ritual. The power of it, the reason that people accept it, the reason that people submit to it, I submit to you is because it is out in public by common consent, it is a merging, a singular kind of public, commonly, public merging of the world of movement and the world of words. Because all movements, even back again like uh, mass or prayer, you know, there's movement to get to church. There's movement that you make the cross, you bow. Every religion has such as that. And then if you see somebody on their knees at an altar or wherever they're doing it, praying. You understand, when I say the world of words, it's not just overt words. It's tacit and overt words. It is a continual merging of the world of movement and the world of words. And I'm telling you that men have an extreme hunger. All men do. Once you see it, there's no doubt. And again, I could stay on this the rest of the night and pull up other examples. I just pulled out, to me, the one that is singular. It is the most blatant, strenuous example of man's hunger for the world, for emerging of the worlds of movement and words. That's what, that's what all rituals are. And from one view, I could say that it was the desire for rituals that started and then men backed up and invented the idea of God and the different religions so as to have an excuse to do it. But there's enough history around if you just take history as it's secondarily recorded. And there's enough history around that is pre-religious in the sense that we call it. It's pre-Christian, pre-Jewish, pre-Zoroastrian that they find that there were rituals going on even before there was anything resembling what we nowadays would call religion but there was rituals of people paying homage before the literate age of people, there's drawings that say anyway, of paying homage to the change of seasons, to the sun, to the moon. They look for reasons to engage in rituals. Uh, before I go back reading, do I have to point out to you that you continually, I'm telling you everyone hungers for it and you don't have to be a member of a church or participate in a public, in a collective ritual, you do it you can sit at home by yourself. You could be a hermit out trying to awaken <coughs> away from everybody, away from all rituals, and you still are engaging in ritualistic acts. You do it constantly. I can say that what mystics have generally called being asleep is an internal extreme example of a ritual. And I can also say the attempt to awaken for people who believe that they're asleep is the same extreme example of an attempt to merge the world of movement or the circuit of movement and the circuit of words. All right. Back to the reading. Humor exists in both the world of movement, as when somebody trips, and the world of words, when unexpected ones pop up in a punchline. Question, would there be humor in the world of movement if there was no world of words? 
Does everybody follow the world of movement? I picked out the classic example. Somebody trips. They slip on a banana peel. That's humor in the world of movement. Humor in the world of words would be other, any other humor besides that, where the words in the punchline are unexpected. There is a surprising juxtaposition. There is a shock. Who was that lady I saw you with last night? That was no lady, that was my wife. It wasn't humorous up until the very last word of the punchline. That was no lady. You know what? It was if you'd never heard the joke before. It's supposed to be, by the way, still, they claim the oldest known joke in the English language. <laughs> Joe Miller, England, if I recall, circa late 1600s. Anyway, who was that lady I saw you with last night? Oh, that was no lady. That was my. Now you know what it's going to be. The final word. So that's the humor in words. My question I present to you, and I'm not going to stop with this, but I see a lot more, and I bring it up, not for the reasons of just humor. There's something else. Then I ask you, consider this, would there be humor in the world of movement if there was no world of words? And you've got to watch it, or you might jump in too fast and answer. That is, if you saw somebody trip or slip on a banana peel, and we had no world of words, would it still be funny? And if you don't watch it, you go, yeah. Uh -huh. Dogs bump into things. Dogs trip. Have you ever seen one dog trip and another one sitting there looking right at him? Show any reaction? Do I have to go further? Much of what goes on physically in the world of movement, right before your eyes, is said to be something quite different once it is run through the world of words. Unless a man realizes this, he will constantly think of other men as inexplicably deluded fools when the words they use to describe life do not match his. If I may say so without spoiling it for you, the comprehensive execution of the investigation will reveal, as concerns the few who undertake it, will reveal that words are irrelevant. Remember, that is, irrelevant for the few that words turn out to be irrelevant regardless, regarding the persuasive desire a few men have to expand to liberate their automatic perceptions of what life is, perceptions that turn out to be controlled entirely by words, not by the moving reality of life. Above all things, an enlightened man is hip to words. Well, I slipped this in again. For those of you who weren't here, I was mentioning it once, Wednesday. I wrote in. I'm building up to this, unless you get it all yourself. Here it is. Being asleep is an attempting to make two out of one. Trying to awaken is the same thing. And now another tip for the would-be investigator. The way you can tell that you're not presently on the case is if you are talking about the case. Even though they do not realize it and that they lack our special interest, religious people are on the right track in their claim that nothing is more important in the life, nothing is more important in life than a man's relationship to God. That is his relationship to words and ultimately his understanding of 
his relationship to words. A few months back, if you recall, I brought this up. I said I saw it on a... Churches surely don't call them billboards out front, do they? Maybe Southern Baptists just figure fuck it and call it what it is, but what do churches call the things up front? I'm sure they got some more sacred-sounding synonym for billboard. But at any rate, uh, it's a common idea that nothing is more important in life than a man's relationship with God. And the reason I brought it up again is specifically having to do with this. Because they are in unwittingly, absolutely on the money. That covers everything of these 20 or 30 pages I've written concerning this model of the two worlds of movement and words. That's it. Nothing is more important in a man's life who wants to awaken than his relationship with God. Which is to say, not to fill it in, with words. Nothing is more important. It's more important than your relationship to your movements. Because your movements are eventually going to wear out. They're going to run down in your worm food. Nothing can stop it. Nothing will reverse it. And there's nothing to say that there's anything after that other than, watch it, words. There's never been any movement witnessed by any man that shows otherwise. There's been words by people who said they witnessed it. You know, like disciples and, and Christianity, they, they came back and they had words that said, hey, I saw him. He got from the grave. Words. And yet the claim is right on the money. It covers everything. That there is nothing more important in life than a man's relationship to words. And that is doubly so for someone attempting to awaken. But Jesus, I feel sorry for you. I feel sorry, more sorry for you than I do myself if it takes you all your life to realize it. And we go back and repeat again. Being asleep is nothing but being asleep in words. Trying to awaken is the same thing. Back to the reading. When a man told a psychiatrist about one of my methods, the doctor shook his head in a concerned manner and cautioned the man. Oh, you cannot laugh all of the time and stay in your right mind. And the man's face lit up with glee. Wow, it's even better than I thought. Hmm. Those who cannot distinguish between the worlds of words and movement are in for a lifetime of normal frustration, uncertainty, and ignorance. Note, this is no exaggeration. Alone atop a mountain as he struggled for the goal, a man looked down toward the city and mused. The difference between me and everybody else is that they don't know what to suffer over and must be told. Well, I can't resist again. That's been floating around in my head for a long, long time. I kept waiting to bring it up and make a whole thing out of it some night. But I got a lot out of that. 
And for a long time, I thought maybe, and it still may be true, that it was just too personal and individual me that I didn't know whether it'd be of any interest. But I used to look around. I'm saying me again, as you know, as always, only telling you, trying to tell you things that benefited me, not to hold me up as an example, because I hope to God you do better. I hope to God you do it faster, more efficiently. But I'm telling you what has worked, what has helped me, and then let you find how it might be in alignment with your own situation. It hit me one day that the whole world, and it had to do with words again, it's along the same line, that's why I finally bring it up tonight. This brings up something else. Do you want to tell you, I'll get back to this, perhaps the, the greatest example of the importance that words play vis-a-vis -vis men's perception of life. And somebody, just on the news recently, somebody's being interviewed, a, an author, some new book. But I've heard this, you've heard it. They're talking to the woman, or the man, it was a woman, and she was babbling on about uh, going to college and how she grew up in a strict religious environment and how she uh, started studying philosophy and literature and she finally realized that her strict religious upbringing and her religious model of life was totally, was too much of a confinement for her to express herself. Anyway, she said, so I finally got over being religious. And there was a pause and then she said, of course, having finally left religion, I was then faced with an unexpected but very important problem. That is, without religion, I think she was Christian, she said, without religion, without the Ten Commandments, she could have been Jewish, but she said, without religion now and the Ten Commandments, I'm faced with this problem. By what? What will, guide, what will I use to guide my life? And they won't discuss, and you've heard that, it's an old, and you'll let it go right by. But now consider this, and you know, again, no hostility, no criticism, or else you miss it. I have none, and don't listen to your own critical ears. You should be indifferent, but listen, because it'll explain things that you don't understand about you. But it, I was going to put it to you on a personal basis. I used to look at such as that and realize there's nothing strange. Your family, everybody, they look to words outside themselves to guide their life. As always, the best example being religion. That this, this person, this author, and she sounded, in fact, she was talking about college, so she was a, a college graduate, has a best-selling book out, so she's literate, has a way with words. When I started listening, she was, uh, had a mastery of the English language. But then she suddenly realized she was faced with an unexpected problem. Since I no longer am religious, since I have abandoned my religion, and I do not have the Ten Commandments, and I do not have the Bible, but the Ten Commandments, I was then left. I felt naked. I felt like I'm just out in life alone with no covering because I realized I don't have anything now by which to lead my life. I don't have anything to guide me. Again, everyone's so used to it. But if you stop and think, a person is saying that they need something to guide the way they live. 
they need to have words outside themselves saying, thou shalt not abandon thy God. Does anybody understand the world of movements needs no God? You don't need a God to live. But now if I can get past that point, uh, just for a second, put to you theoretically, verbally and theoretically, what can you say about the intelligence of a person that says that they do not know how to live? Now again, you're so used to it, but can anybody just take a look at you, anybody, that someone says, well, I'm not sure how to live. How can you not be sure how to live? And that's what made me come up with this. Then I thought, wait a minute. There is, again, the great difference between me and the rest of the world. Because I, I still like that deal. What if the rest of the world's right and I'm wrong? They've always outnumbered me. Now, I don't care, but I still think it would be quite interesting, to say the least. But I thought, wait a minute. No one, of course, it's not true. Well, in a sense, you know, I've read a book, as I told you, the first one was on the basis that man is asleep and through certain efforts he can awaken. All right, so I read that and went, yeah. But in a sense, nobody had to tell me how to suffer. And when I say suffer, do you know what I mean? What I mean by it, I suffer over being asleep. Since I adopted that word when I read, when I first read, man is asleep, even though he thinks he's fully conscious, man is actually asleep, but through certain efforts can awaken. I'd already been suffering, I've told you my little pissant history. And I say suffer over the sense that nothing ever satisfied me. Verbally. I called it mentally. That I would ask questions of everyone around me and no one could answer them. No one was even interested. And I continued to suffer over it. And at first I thought when I would talk to a priest or a rabbi or a teacher and I'd say, uh, how did they come up with the idea of objective right and wrong? And that kind of shit. And not only did they not have an answer, not only did they not seem interested, I would then wait and I would you know, check with them later. I'd you know, go back to see the rabbi or I would you know, watch some teacher. I might have a class with a teacher and I'd keep waiting to see that my question, now that I had implanted it in her and she said, well, I never thought about it, I don't know. Then I kept waiting to see that like some kind of science fiction, that I had planned some kind of bug in her head and she would begin to be concerned and suffer over it with me. Like, you don't come to me within a day or so at least and go, you know, that is an interesting question. Now you've got me, I'm staying up at night wondering. Never happened. I could never see that anyone in the world suffered. That is, was concerned over it. But at any rate, so here it is later in life, and on the basis of words, I'm trying to, trying to tie it in for you, I looked around and I thought, well, there is, again, an absolute distinction, an unconditional distinction, that just generally speaking, the rest of the world must be told what to suffer over, like, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. Again, I, everyone's so used to this, I don't think that you've actually even looked at it head on. How about this? Let's get away from just religion. Well, picture this kind of scene. Here's something that's common throughout history. Somebody gets drunk and starts a fight with their friend. And the next day, they're told about it. And they don't even remember it. But they're told, you started a fight with, and you're the person's best friend. And the person is aghast. And they will do such as this. They'll begin to ponder and perhaps turn, if they're a Christian or Jewish, they'll go to the Bible 
to, to check into it to ascertain for certain that what they did was wrong. Does anybody follow? And if you don't go look in the Bible, it's that people <laughs> don't like search their memory like, well, let's see. Have I read, is it psychologically, should I not be drinking at all or did I drink too much? <laughs> or is it a psychologically accepted fact that if you drink X amount that, it's, uh, that other people should expect that you might get rowdy and start a fight? They have to ponder. I say to you that at the movement level, or as I usually put it, I say to you, it's got to be true that everybody on this planet knows what to do. Uh, I see this in a slightly more complex way, but I can see it head on, that nobody needs the Ten Commandments. Nobody needs to be told you shouldn't steal. That doesn't mean that people might not steal if they needed to, like to steal food to feed themselves or their family. They might do it. But no one, I submit to you, needs to be, they, no one needs the Ten Commandments. No one needs to ask, when somebody comes out of a store, two people are in the store together, one of them comes out and one of them says, oh look, and he pulls in his pocket and he shoplifted some little trinket. And maybe his friend says, damn, you stole that? And he goes, well, yeah, it was just, it was more like a challenge. I mean, it didn't mean anything. I didn't really want it. It only cost, what was 19 cents? Uh, and one person look at another and like, and they'll ask, did I do wrong? I mean, was that so bad? Again, I'm going to sound theatrical and passionate and sound critical, but I'm trying to get you to look at it. I'm asking you, what kind of idiot is that? Is there six billion people on this planet that have no sense? And they wonder, well, let's see, let me go, let me check the Bible and see. I remember there was something about thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. I wonder how about it, my neighbor's, how about my neighbor's maid? Or maybe my neighbor's wife's sister. <laughs> Let me go check. Does it say anything about my... Now, you're, not, you're laughing, but do you know, without me getting into further detail, that is not simply a joke. People are doing that constantly. That is part of the ritual of behavior of a religion, and that is part of people's reliance. And they will, catch this, they will say, that is, in words, they will say that that's the reliance that it gives me something to depend on. Because at murky times, when I'm uncertain as to how I would, should behave, or if I'm uncertain as to whether my previous behavior in a given instance was acceptable or not, I, I have my religion to fall back on. And if I can't immediately find it in our Vedimikam, I can go and talk to the rabbi. And I can, I can explain the situation, and he has a better knowledge of the scriptures, and he can tell me, because this is, I, I, I think this is a, it's an unusual circumstance. And I will be sure. Again, I'm being theatrical, but I want to say, horse shit. Who the hell are you trying to fool? Because I say everybody knows. I say everybody knows. They just don't want to know that they know. It's again, as I presented to you a month or so ago, it's man's either, I'll leave it to you to look at, it's his inability to, or else his refusal to, see himself for what he is. Because I say that everybody knows what's going on. And if you don't get it, how about this? Where did the Bible come from? Where did any standards come from? That is, they're verbal standards. Remember that, they're nothing but words. That's all the hell they are. But they came from humans. And of course, then humans, retroactively, they like to look back and say, well, no, it wasn't other humans. 
that said, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not. God said it. Yeah, some man said that God said it. Does anybody get it? And yet everyone wants, verbally, everyone wants in words to have a guide to live by. But the guides came from other men's words. So what it amounts to is ordinary people want to have words whose source is outside of them for them to use to direct their life. Well, there's nothing wrong. They're not being fooled. They're not going to be worse off because it's the environment directing our life anyway. Well, in conjunction with us, it's a conspiracy. You and the environment have to act together. But there is the importance of words. That an intelligent person will say, now that I've lost my religion, I've almost lost my compass in life. In the interviewer, I can still, it was on the radio, I can still, when she said it's almost, I've lost my compass, now that I don't have religion, I, not that I regret that I got over it, but then it was surprised me, it was an unexpected uh, turn of events, that then I was faced with not having a moral compass, a spiritual compass, to direct my life after that. And I could hit the interviewer one, hmm. You know, like, damn, that is something. It's nothing. It's idiocy. I'm being dramatic again to try to get you to... That you need words. Remember, it's words. When the state comes in, when that is the collective will of a group of people gets beyond the religious level, the state then comes in to reinforce words with what? Movements. <laughs> Churches have rituals and, of course, all this is just, relatively speaking, one to the other, but religion apparently, you understand, is voluntary, that you engage in the rituals. Well, I've already been through that with you earlier this evening, but they appear to be voluntary as opposed to laws, morality. Religious morality would appear to be voluntary as opposed to adherence to the laws is mandatory. And so the state is like religion grown up. It's like religion used to want to be back in the Middle Ages in the Western world. But as we all know, the Pope blinked <laughs> when he started having to deal with the likes of Charlemagne's and Stalin's. Popes blinked. At any rate, the church is like, uh, the, the state is like church with muscles, with balls. It grew up because it does one thing that religion does not do is it enforces its rituals with movement. That is, they will move up to you and handcuff you and maybe hit you in the head and put you... No, literally. Well, I thought everybody understood that movement goes with it. All a priest can do, all they do do, or a rabbi, is spew out words. The state spews out words. They spew out words that in a democracy, a legislature gets together. And out of there, they spew out words that say the new law is, thou shalt not hit a cop. You know, whatever the law is. Thou shalt not do so-and-so. But they have movement behind it. That is the difference between the state and religion. The state will move on you. It will literally move. Whereas religion won't. The priest just says, you know, you shouldn't kill. It says right here in the Ten Commandments. Jehovah said, thou shalt not kill. And you can kill somebody and come to church and they can say, our sermon today is thou shalt not kill. And you can say, I killed somebody. And the priest just says, you shouldn't have done that. The rabbi says, shame on you. 
but you walk into a court, a police station, say, I killed somebody, the state will move, literally, will engage in movement. They will move over to you and arrest you. You know, I said that the greatest example, perhaps, was people saying that they don't know how to lead their life. Let me end, since I'm not going by any means finish. Other examples that just pop up every day on the news to show you the importance that people place on words and it's not recognized for what it is. The most commonly used and dramatic teaser that they use on the news, on radio, television, print media, but you hear it all the time, you just don't notice it. A station or a network, whatever it is, uh, a teaser during a commercial break, They'll say, be sure and stay tuned to such and such tonight, 7 o'clock news or whatever. And they'll say, tonight, for the first time since the tragedy, Colonel Connolly will speak. Or the Johnson family finally breaks their silence and speaks tonight exclusively to NBC. It goes on constantly since the tragedy that struck his family for the first time tonight, and only tonight, and only on this station, will Fred Swartz speak about the matter. The drama of it. And if you don't watch it, you could dismiss it. Oh, well, people love gossip. In this station, the networks is trying, of course, to tout themselves. But there's more to it than that. Not that that's not true, but consider the words themselves. They'll say, since the tragedy, as we all know, Lieutenant Connolly has spoken to no one. But tonight, and tonight only, he comes in front of our cameras to our microphone and he will put, open his mouth and words will come out about this horrendous event in his life up to which time, up till now, about which he has been silent. And if you don't get it, I refer you as always back to your own head, you pull that same shit on yourself. You do. You don't get it? How about this? Just wait till I become a little more awake. Just wait till I get over this. If I can get over it being so, you know, every time I get around women, I take a nap. Every time I get around a hostile situation, anytime I get around an air, people or an environment wherein I feel inferior, boy, I just go to sleep. I, later, I'm just worn out. I'm groggy. But boy, when I overcome that, it's the same thing. Because you're really good, turn it inside out and then turn it sort of about, I'd say between 68 and maybe 73 degrees, either to the left or the right and then look at it. And don't forget to, I mean, because now you should be expecting it, but if you have to, demand your 15% discount. Just speak right up and say, evidently you don't understand, sir, or madam, whoever's waiting on you, I'm enlightened. <laughs> Just remind them of the automatic discount. So. Don't let them run over you out there. Or mainly in here. That concludes this talk. Be sure to visit us at jancox.com, where you can search through 3,000 talks for topics of interest, 
or just leave us a message.